How many of you have owned a dog? Just raise your hand. Don't be shy. Um, I had a German Shepherd when I was a kid. And that dog had this inerrant sense of distance and separation from its owner. I, the point being that he, he would go out and I'd say, come, and he'd come, or I'd whistle and he'd come, but he'd get to a certain point, and after that point, if he stepped just one step over, he couldn't hear me, and he'd just keep right on going. I, and I think oftentimes, uh, when it comes to, to things like change in our lives, etc., uh, we don't like to come when called. We're so independent, pretty autonomous. We're taught to be, we're actually taught to be self-centered in the United States. Uh, everything's about me uh, kind of idea. Someone said that we, we worship at an obelisk that's labeled me, myself, mine. You know, that, that kind of idea. And it, it seems to consume our thoughts a whole lot of the time. I was thinking uh, about the, the process of, of change. If we could have that next, next slide. Um, the idea of moving to maturity from uh, change in our life uh, as well. Uh, it can bring enthusiasm, delight, anticipation, uh, apprehension, fear, paralysis, even transient terror. Change can sometimes bring all of those kinds of things. Um, you remember good changes in your life, but the stress that accompanied those changes, even good changes, even a good uh, change like uh, from uh, Halloween to Christmas, no matter that in the U.S. we've just skipped over Thanksgiving entirely. Uh, you know, if you shop at Costco or wherever, there's Christmas decorations out and up now uh, for your purchasing pleasure. The, the problem with, with change itself is if I'm not in charge of what's going to take place, this kind of uh, arrow default can begin to take place. I anticipate what's going to happen, but I kind of wonder, how am I going to get along with the new employees? How am I going to get along with the, the new kids in the class? How am I going to get along with uh, uh, my, my spouse, with my wife, or with my husband when after we move, or is this move going to be something that's going to be constructive or destructive? How are we going to afford it? All of a sudden, uh, we kind of get stricken with a problem or two in this whole idea of change. God wants us to change. He wants things to be different in our lives, and He wants to draw us on a, on a path to maturity that I think, for most of us, is kind of a long, continuing path. It's certainly not an instantaneous kind of path uh, that we find ourselves on. We're going to look at a couple passages this morning. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 40. And let's uh, take a peek at that particular slide. Uh, and it goes like this. God is, is speaking to the nation of Israel, to, to Judah, uh, as well, the, the two separate portions of, of uh, Israel in, that, in the Holy Land itself. And, and he says, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and 
calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. What a remarkable thing. Here is a God that uh, creates the heavens and the earth, etc., and he is involved in, in the whole of the universe as well. And the only problem there is, well, what about me? Who's going who's gonna to take care of me? Who's going to know who I am? This passage in Isaiah 40 starts out by saying, um, why do you say my way is hidden from me? Why do you say that your way is hidden from me? Why, why do you say that? And I think it's because we resist this change idea and we have a tendency to keep at arm's length anything that's going to influence us in some kind of predominant way that's going to make our existence different than what I want it to be. When we look at a, a starry night, for instance, over a, a, there's a, a cabin that my wife and I have gone to for years and years and years, and years all my life, literally, uh, in Wyoming. And you can see in this particular picture uh, that there's this, this band that we call the Milky Way. And on a dark night without much ambient light, you can begin to actually see stars. If you live in New York City, you might see a star, but it might really be a helicopter, you know, with a spotlight trying to pick up some criminal down below. In this particular uh, place, we, we look at these stars and we think, well, how big are the heavens? And we think of the Milky Way itself, and you know that the Milky Way is pretty big. It's a cluster of, of stars in, in this crazy spiral fashion that's there, and we live out on the Orient arm of that. The Milky Way itself is about 100,000 light years across. Now, if you're traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 100,000 years to go from one side of the Milky Way to the other side. My mind begins to short out. I can't fathom those distances, that time involved, etc. Just, I just can't understand it very well. Um, then we look at, at a, maybe a single individual star within the, within the Milky Way. Uh, for instance, Betelgeuse is, is uh, one that's about 460 light years from us. So it's close. 460 years at those crazy speeds. And you'd just be getting to this huge star that, that may be out of business in, in a few years. Well, maybe 100,000 years or something of that nature, astronomers tell us. And, but we're looking at, at space out there, and, and we think the Milky Way, we live in the Milky Way. It's a galaxy. When you look up at the stars at night and you see maybe a little bright fuzzy spot up there, you have no idea what you're looking at or, or where it is. Uh, it's very likely a galaxy if it's bright enough for you to be able to see it. Another galaxy, a galaxy like the Milky Way, yes. There are about 200 billion galaxies that we understand and know about in the universe. Just the other day, NASA came out and said, it's not 200 billion galaxies. There's probably 2 trillion galaxies out there. We just keep finding stuff that God has put together and God has created. It's really big out there. It's so big that our way, my way, your way, 
could get lost to a God like that. That's the way we feel, isn't it? Why would he care about me as an individual? Why would he care if I change or not? Hey, the world's going to go on if I don't change. If I do change, the world's going to go on. Everything is the same yesterday as it was today and probably will be tomorrow. Sometimes it's irrespective of our politics. It's irrespective of our health. You know, who's, who's going to miss me in the scheme, the grand scheme of things? And so often we look at Scripture uh, just like that. There's um, a couple other verses that I'd like for us to look at in uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He won't grow tired or weary, and His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And the next slide as well, we'll just continue in Isaiah 40. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord or wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. If you wanted to be any animal in the world... You might choose a carrion-eating, side-by-the-road kind of creature like I would, an eagle. I'd love to be an eagle, except during those times when they're munching at the side of the road. But just to be able to fly off of a cliff, you know, and, and soar. I was with Tim Sealing uh, years ago out in Salt Lake City, and, and Tim was uh, flying his kite way up there, hang gliding. And as he was, as he was gliding, I noticed... Two other things pull up beside him. One on each wing. An eagle on each wing pulled right up beside him as he's hang gliding. And everything he did, those eagles did. It was the coolest thing I've ever seen. And uh, then those eagles started doing things and Tim would mimic them and follow them. And they did this for 15 or 20 minutes. It was just phenomenal to watch. And I thought... Boy, I'd like to be an eagle. I don't want to be Tim, but I'd like to be an eagle. <laughs> we look at passages like this then and we think, this sounds like God is interested in each of us in some kind of particular way, in, in a personal way. I mean, he's interested in whether we'll stumble and fall, whether we'll be able to pick ourselves up, whether we'll be able to run and not be weary. We're hopeful that that's, that's who he is. And that's indeed what his word continues to tell us about. He's not only the creator of all of it, but he's omnipresent. He's close by. He's nearby as well. As a matter of fact, Scripture uses the illustration of him being face-to-face with us. Being present in us. In the Gospel of John, for instance, we read the phrase, Christ in you or you in Christ, over 50 times. A direct, personal kind of relationship that's present there. I have a, a, a book that I've been looking through uh, in the mornings. It's a devotional book. It's written by Paul David Tripp. And uh, I just want to read a passage to you about how God invites us uh, to come to him. You remember that passage uh, where, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you that are 
that labor and are heavy laden carry a big burden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and lowly in heart, lowly and humble in heart. Take my yoke upon you. And I'm thinking, a yoke? I don't think so. That's like uh, when it binds two oxen together. It's really heavy. It's strong. Usually made of some material like oak, etc. And it sounds like, ah, that'd be too much. But Jesus continues. He says, my burden is, is light. It's a light thing. It's not heavy. Tripp goes on to, to tell us uh, these kinds of things. Listen to this. What he can do for you that no one else can do. He has power that no one else possesses. He is able and willing to meet you in your moments of need, even when that need is self-inflicted. He will never mock you in your weakness. He will not stand idly by and sarcastically say, I told you so. Could you imagine if God did that? The echoes of I told you so would fill the room, huh? He finds no joy in your suffering. He is full of compassion. He abounds in mercy. He will never walk away disgusted. He will never use your weakness against you. He has no favorites and shows no partiality. He never grows tired. He never becomes impatient. He will never quit because he's had enough. He will never refuse to give you what he's promised because you've messed up so badly. He is just as faithful to all of his promises on your very worst day as he is on your very best day. He doesn't ask you to earn his compassion or to do things to gain his mercy. He knows how weak and fickle your heart is. Yet he continues to move towards you with unrelenting and empowering grace. He delights in meeting your needs. He finds joy in bringing peace to your heart. He really is everything that you need. Why would you run anywhere else? in your time of weakness or trouble. In uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, in chapter 8, he says that that God has uh, predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, to be like Jesus. That's what He wants each of us to be. Ah, what a huge task that God has cut out for himself. But you remember that this is the God that has created the heavens that astound us and short our brains out. But he's also the God that is intently interested uh, in you, in your life. The process of, of being a disciple of Jesus was kind of an interesting one from the viewpoint of, of Jewish history, we can, we can go back in time and we can see what that process would entail. So in Jesus' time, uh, there were buildings, small buildings that were community centers called synagogues, and we still have synagogues around today, which are community centers, and, and also places of worship, places of prayer, uh, places where the community would gather and discuss various issues, etc. But the primary concern of a synagogue during that period of time was the Word of God. They even had a closet that they called uh, an ark, a Torah ark, uh, a place where the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, uh, would be restored on on, uh, scrolls. 
if they had the means to have each a scroll there, and it would be written out on the scroll, and they'd unroll the scroll, and they, they would read it. Uh, oftentimes, when the scroll was unroll, unrolled, as a matter of fact, in front of people, uh, a rabbi or teacher of that day or an elder perhaps would unroll the scroll and, and he'd bring it down and around to the people and they'd reach out and touch it and, and taste it. Remember that passage that says, taste and see that the Lord is good? Uh, your word is sweeter than honey to my... That's the idea that was going on in their minds at that point in time. They would uh, then settle down they would listen to the word described, etc., etc. Now, if you were a child, you might not have been dismissed from the service. As a matter of fact, boys and girls, age five and above, began to attend a school uh, that was called Beth Sefer. And it was a school for reading and writing. And the text was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And by the time they reached the age of 12 or 13, they would have memorized the Torah. Now, can you imagine that? I had trouble with the Gettysburg Address when I was a kid. I don't remember hardly any of it today. I do remember something from Latin. You know, I think it was all Gaul is divided into seven parts. That's all I remember. I remember two words in Turkish. Yeshil fasulya, which was green beans. I was safe in Turkey because I could say that, you know, Yeshua Fasulia. And people would go, uh huh, sure, okay. <laughs> I could understand all of that kind of thing. Um, my memory is not that good. As a matter of fact, I went to school with guys that had photographic minds. And that disturbed me no end because I'd be in a test. And I'd be sitting there thumping my pencil or something on the table. And they would be going like this. I asked them afterward, what are you looking at? And they said, page 694. I'd say, page 694 is blank. You know, I could look at 694. It didn't make any difference at all. It was blank to me. Memory is a hard thing to go by. And I'm thinking, if I wanted to be a disciple during that period of time, I would hardly be able to get through Beth Sefer, the beginning school. And then if they did well in that, they would be asked to go to Beth Midrash. Beth Midrash would be run by elders or perhaps a rabbi, if they could afford to have a rabbi come in. And generally at that point in time, they would have a rabbi come into the synagogue to the little school that's attached. And he would teach you for uh, a, a number of years at that point, probably age uh, 14 or 15 on up to age 20. And this is if you had kind of a gift for learning and a desire, a passion to learn. If you really wanted to learn, you could go on. If I had known in the process of, of uh, my study in veterinary medicine, etc., that I had to know as much chemistry as I had to learn, I wouldn't have done it. Because that, you know, chemistry kills. And I wouldn't have been able to do that. These guys had to have a passion for what was to come. And Beth Midrash was the idea of delving deeper into the Scripture, 
finding out how it's applied and how he put it to use and what it means. And they would begin to memorize uh, the writings, the prophets, the rest of the law. They would begin to memorize that. By the time they were 20 or so, oftentimes they would have the whole Old Testament memorized. An unbelievable task. Who could do that? I mean, who could do that? And yet there were people that would begin to progress like that. Paul was one of those that wrote so many uh, letters in, in the New Testament. Paul was one that knew Scripture. Yet you know what kind of relationship he had with God? I mean, God said, why? Saul, Saul. His former name, before it was changed to Paul. Why do you persecute me? You have all this knowledge and you're going the wrong way with it. Or you're utilizing it in some wrong fashion. And I think of, of so, many, so many Christians, believers, that we still continue to do wrong things. We don't treat people well. We don't treat our families particularly well. We're really out for ourselves. If it feels good to me, then I'll, I'll try to make it work for you. And that's a hard uh, process for all of us to be in, involved in, I think, to a great extent. And so these guys in Beth Midrash would, would graduate, then they'd look around and they'd try to find a, an individual, a rabbi, a teacher, a master teacher, that they could follow and, and learn from. And they'd watch a few of the men that would travel around the country and come through those areas. Uh, and they'd, they'd pick one and they'd go up to him and say, I, could I be your disciple, your disciple, your, your Talmudine? And the guy would look at him and say, hmm, you know, I, I heard a little bit about you and I don't think so. And oftentimes, I, if... They were refused. Of course, they went back to their former work. Oftentimes, just after Beth Sheffer, that beginning school, they would leave from there, and, they, and uh, the, the young gals that had, had studied at that point in time would go back to their homes, and, and uh, the, the duties of the home would uh, you know, take over their lives, and they'd be involved there. They would be allowed to come to Beth Midrash when they had spare time, the young men that went back to fishing, they would be allowed to come to Beth Midrash and, and study further if they wanted to, but they wouldn't take it very seriously uh, because we have other things to do. But there were a few that went further. I was thinking about Jesus' disciples. Uh, here's a Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip, that all come from this little fishing village called Bethsaida, clear at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. There's three little villages up there. Uh, Bethsaida, about 600 people or so, probably in that, in that little town, fishing village. Uh, and Capernaum, uh, alongside the Sea of Galilee as well, a little larger. Uh, more taxes collected there in that, in that city, so there was a Roman presence as well in it. Uh, there was Chorazin, 
Another little, little village, not much bigger than Bethsaida, but a little bit bigger, big enough to have a synagogue. And attached to that synagogue was a, a little school, and they would have school, and they would have that process that they were going through. And I think Jesus walked into that village and picked five people to be his disciples. And as far as I can tell, they were all yo-yos. Um, they were a lot like you and me. They, they weren't special people. They weren't highly educated. It's always mystified me why Jesus went to Bethsaida and picked these guys or to Chorazin or to Capernaum instead of, uh, for instance, to a, a place called Sepphoris. Anybody ever hear of that term, that city? It was one of the largest cities in Israel at the time. It was the, the seat of Herod's government for a long period of time before he transferred it to Jerusalem area. And it had theaters and gymnasiums or universities. Thousands of people, highly educated, sophisticated, able to do any task. They had sewers, they had running water, they had all this stuff. Why didn't Jesus go there and pick, pick some guys out of there? Would have saved him a lot of time, I think. Well, not necessarily so. He instead goes where? To these guys that barely made it through Beth Sefer. Fishermen. Nothing wrong with that profession. I mean, people spend thousands of dollars to come up here and fish, right? <laughs> Nothing at all wrong with the profession. It's just that wouldn't Jesus pick some of these guys that were, have excelled in their study and their learning and all those kinds of things? But he picks these guys to follow him. Jesus said, remember, this is in John chapter 15, I think, somewhere in there. Remember, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Remember how a rabbi, you choose the rabbi? And you hope that he'll accept you? Jesus says, hey, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Now, this is radically different from the rest of the system in that period of time. So all of a sudden, it opens up the idea of becoming a disciple of Jesus, being conformed to his image, which is God's ultimate purpose in our lives. It opens it up to every one of us. Because it's by His grace, His gift of life, that we can begin to apply what we learn. Learn from me, Jesus says. He not only means head knowledge, but He means the kind of heart knowledge that actually gets out on the street and does things. The kind of knowledge that actually... Uh, allows you to love people. There's a slide uh, in this presentation from um, Galatians. Uh, verse 16 talks about walking by the Spirit. That word walk is used another time in Galatians chapter 5. And it's translated differently in the, in the second verse that's there. The first verse says, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
that first use of the word walk is the idea of, it's an expression of, of God's ultimate purpose. What he wants to accomplish in, in your life. The second walk is more like the day-to-day, step-by-step. Uh, there's one translation of Scripture that says, hey, you start by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with, with God's direction and His purpose on a, you know, a daily basis. This is the process of discipleship that Jesus has called us into. He spent a lot of time and incredible amounts of energy. But that wasn't the price. The price, of course, was his life. To bring us into a personal relationship with him. There are passages that are on from this, and we'll go to the next one. Um, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Take a look at this one for just a moment or two. For this very reason, reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness uh, mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice that knowledge is used in, with, in the same sentence as, as ineffective and unproductive? Um, those are doing it type words. Those are getting involved type words, not just knowledge but putting it out on the street where it's active and it'll be appreciated. You know, one of the reasons that people appreciate Christians is because they have love for each other and love for them. One of the reasons people don't appreciate Christians is because Christians don't have love for others and love for them. People can tell if it's Jesus Christ working in your life or if you're just an average person that has love just for self. And this passage then is directing us that, that way. And so we, we look at, at goodness, add to your faith, goodness. Add to your faith. The, faith is, is literally, it's the, uh, uh, in, in the book of Jude, it's, it's defined as the, the once delivered unto the saints kind of faith. That is the, the whole body of what Christians believe. What God has told us is true about himself and true about what he wants in our lives. That's a body of knowledge. Add to that action, goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. Keep figuring out how to put it to work. Self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, all of these things can only come through the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. One of my favorite passages is found in, in the letter to the Philippians, just in the first chapter. And it says the, the work 
that I have started, I will finish. Jesus speaking. What he starts in your life, he will finish. He didn't say, the work that I started, get on it. Do it yourself. Because this whole list that was up here would be impossible for us to pull off. Wouldn't it? Somehow, we've got to have some means or way, some authority, power, some decision-making ability that pushes us in these right directions, that gives us the ability to live as God wants us to live. And God's Holy Spirit is in that very business. So when he says, come to me, he means just what the discipler would say, the rabbi would say to his disciples. Do you have the passion to come? Do you want to be as I am? Do you want to be like me? Is that what our hearts say? Christianity can just be a kind of a convenience thing if we want to use it that way. It's been used like that throughout history, hasn't it? <laughs> Great wars fought. There were Christians killing Christians for a whole portion of the Crusades, for instance, and Christians killing Muslims. And it went on and on like that for years. And people look, don't they look back at the Crusades and say, you call yourself a Christian? <laughs> Aren't you a little ashamed? And the problem has been that we haven't allowed God to really change our hearts and lives in such a way that it begins to spill out into our neighborhoods, spill out into our families, spill out over our husband, over our wife, so that we begin to love them with God's love, with His authority. There's another passage uh, that we'll look at. Uh, it's in Philippians chapter 3. And Paul is, is talking to us, and I know he is so aware that he is demanding way too much of us all. I mean, I can do some of this stuff, Paul, but I can't do it all. I can barely do some of it. And Paul says this, uh, it's, it's not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What's his purpose for us? To bear fruit. To live for him. To love others. But I, that's what he's pressing on, on to. And he says, brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken a hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Straining towards what is ahead. Pressing on towards what is ahead. I don't know, this sounds like a full-time job to me. Doesn't sound like I can get away with a, a, you know, three 12-hour days. You know, and then... If I do that, won't God be satisfied with that? And then I can do what I want to do. But see, the, the problem is we've forgotten that what we want to do 
can be exactly what God wants us to do, but we just don't involve Him in it. He's not there. He's not present. So I'm going to go boating and fishing, but I'm not going to take Jesus with me. The disciples didn't say that. They were always saying, get in the boat. And then wake up. You know, if you're going to be in the boat, you got to do some work. Little did they know that they were his work. And when you ask Jesus Christ on board in your life, it's that process that he's talking about. Becoming a disciple. Becoming like him. Wanting to experience both the the, the joy and the compassion, the love, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, everything that he is interested in giving you, which, by the way, you want other people to have. But are we going to allow that to permeate our lives so that it just kind of begins to ooze out and begins to affect others? We're going to collect an offering in just a moment. Um, Let me pray just before we do that. Father, I thank you for uh, (laughs) the amazing things that you do in our lives. How you've kept us alive on this little tiny place that we call Earth. In this little tiny country we call the United States, in this little tiny city that we call home. And we wonder what you have for us. Do you even know we're here? We've heard passages in your word this morning that illustrate that you do know not only that we're here, but you want to be personally involved with us in a tremendous way. And we thank you for the opportunity to. Uh, Give a little bit back of what you've given us. Just remind us of where it all comes from in the first place. We thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen.